as a producer, I'm offered up actors all the time. And it's so tempting because I know I'll get the, the project made, but it's wrong. Right. It's not right. I'm putting in an actor in a role that I feel he can't handle or isn't right for or the audience isn't going to believe. Now, I'm all for, yes, can Will Ferrell do drama? Yes, but it's got to be the right drama. Mm-hmm. You know, can, can a comedian, can Jim Carrey do, you know, do drama as well? Yes, if it's, it's the right role. Can a dramatic actor do comedy? Uh, not so much. <laughs> <laughs> Brian Smith here, and welcome to the Dream Path Podcast, where I try to get inside the heads of talented creatives from all over the world. My goal is to demystify and humanize the creative process and make it accessible to everyone. Now let's jump in. Matthew Berry's on the show today. Matthew is a Los Angeles-based actor, casting director, and acting teacher. Matthew's film career was launched in the late 70s at the age of 15 when he landed a role opposite Jill Clayburgh in the Bernardo Bertolucci film Luna. In the 1980s, Matthew landed multiple roles on television series like Family Ties and Cagney and Lacey, as well as films like Indecent Proposal with Robert Redford, Demi Moore, and Woody Harrelson, and Ed Wood, directed by Tim Burton and starring Johnny Depp and Bill Murray. By the early 90s, Matthew found his way into casting becoming one of the most sought-after casting directors in Hollywood. Matthew was the casting director on the Nick Cassavetes films Unhook the Stars with Gina Rollins and Marissa Tomei, She's So Lovely with John Travolta, Sean Penn, Robin Wright Penn and James Gandolfini, John Q. starring Denzel Washington, The Notebook starring Ryan Gosling and Rachel McAdams, and Alpha Dog starring Justin Timberlake, Emile Hirsch, and Amanda Seyfried. Matthew was also the casting director on Con Air with Nicolas Cage and John Malkovich, Rush Hour and Rush Hour 2 with Jackie Chan and Chris Tucker, as well as the soon-to-be-released film All-Star Weekend, written and directed by Jamie Foxx and starring Robert Downey Jr., Gerard Butler, and Benicio Del Toro. If you want to see Matthew's full list of television and film credits, go to his IMDb page, which I'll link in the show notes, because there are just too many cool credits to include in this intro. I've talked to creatives from many industries on the podcast, but Matthew was the first casting director I've interviewed. It was nice hearing from Matthew about how casting directors fit into the film world and how important they are to the process. Casting is an aspect of filmmaking that is so behind the scenes, so off the radar to most audiences, yet it's so integral to how a film comes together. So I'm glad Matthew took time to sit down and tell us his story. So let's jump right into my chat with actor and casting director Matthew Berry. Hey. Hey, hey there. Matthew. <laughs> What's up, bro? Hey, hey, not much, man. Thanks for making time for me. You got an old Gretcho up there? You know, it's a, it's, a, it's an old Gibson. Yeah, that's what it is. Yeah. A, an F-hole Gibson. And it's, um, I, I bought it from a friend of mine. It was sitting in his closet for many, many years. And it's one of my favorite guitars now. Oh, it's gorgeous. Yeah. Do you play? I did. I'm an old punk from New York. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Right on. Yeah. I did the CBGBs and the Mud Club and all those places way back in the day. Oh, right on. Yeah. So what, what time frame was that? 70s? No, early, early 80s. In 1981, 82, mostly 82 before I came out here. Okay. Because yeah. I know you're fr- friends with Chris Kincaid, and I think Chris was playing with Rail back in the 70s. Yeah. And so I thought maybe you were in that same generation. Yeah, but- no, I was, I was a New Yorker, born and raised, so... I got uh, I got, I was uh, very very inundated in the uh, in the punk scene. So it was Oh, uh, right on. Yeah. Yeah, so what made you um leave music and head to uh, New York music anyway and, and head to LA? 
Well, I think that, you know, I, I, one, I wasn't very good. Two, I was much better at acting and making a better living at, <laughs> at acting than, than I probably would have made it uh, making money in music. Uh-huh. So, but, but I, had a, I had a great time. Great time playing with some, some great people and great clubs and just had a good time. You know, when you're young, you, you know, you, you try things out. So Yeah. So where in New York did you, or were you born and raised? I was, I was actually, I was born in Brooklyn, but I don't remember Brooklyn because we moved to the projects when I was two years old in Chelsea. Oh. And so I lived in the projects until I was eight. And then my parents moved down to this huge artist complex down in Greenwich Village, which uh, I grew up with guys like Vin Diesel and uh, Dash Mihawk, who's on uh, Ray Donovan. Wow. And a lot of Josh Hamilton. I mean, there's so many great artists that came from this place called Westbeth. And that's basically where, where I grew up. Yeah, it was this huge 385 apartments and this just great complex with all these, all these kids. All, we all grew up together and quite a lot of famous people too. Gil Evans was, you know, the great jazz musician was my, uh, my neighbor, played with his two kids, Miles and Noah. And it's, and it's funny, I, I like to tell this story where, you know, I was playing with Miles and Noah and Gil, who's a very famous jazz musician, would be composing upstairs. And one day this, this guy walks in and he was the scariest African-American guy I'd ever seen in my life. Turns out it was Miles, Miles Davis. What, what was so scary about him? He just intense? Oh, he was just so intense. And just like this, you know, just these deep set eyes. It's like you take one look at him and he's just got this energy. He just had this energy. And I was like, whoa. You know, as a kid, you know, you're easily intimidated. Right, you know? right. And so this, this guy walks in and, 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 and I was like, uh, and I didn't know who he was. And my, I told my mom, I was like, yeah, it was a scary. It was like, oh yeah, that's Miles Davis. No way. Because him and, him and uh, Gil were, were collaborating on an album. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's, I had a, I had a pretty, pretty, pretty nice uh, childhood. I can't, I can't complain. I would imagine that that type of be, being in that environment would be formative in terms of your direction artistically. Yeah. I mean, it, it definitely, we, we liked to, we all got together and played music. We, we had down in the, in the basement of this building, there were all these studios and Basically, we, we bribed the management. We said, look, you can give us one of these studios for free or we can tear this place down. <laughs> and so they relented and gave us our own studio where we could go and jam and, and experiment and play music and hang out and, you know, and do things that teenagers do. Yeah. And, uh, and, and we just had the greatest time all day, every day, just experimenting and playing, you know, playing music. Who were your influences back then? Zappa. Frank Zappa was, it still is to this day. I mean, Frank, is, his music was just so, it just, I was probably 11 years old in summer camp and I heard this music coming from the camp counselors, you know, bunk area. And I remember I was so fascinated. It was overnight sensation. And I was fascinated by this music. And when the camp counselors went out to go get some, some chow, I snuck into their camp and looked at the record. And that was one of the very first purchases when I was 13 years old and made money. The very first purchase I made was Overnight Sensation by Frank Zappa. And then, of course, I had to buy the entire back catalog. And it was just incredibly just inspired by Frank. And then a little later on, it was Elvis Costello, mm. you know, who, who, came, who came out of the punk scene, but was more, you know, pop punk. Right. And so he was, he was very much, much the inspiration. But, you know, Zappa and, and his music, it was, it was just just in, incredible. So he was the one that kind of influenced where, where I wanted to go. Even though I, I, I kind of geared more, the band I had was more, more towards the, the, the punk scene and, yeah. you know, just having good old rock and roll, you know? 
Well, Zappa to me is like, if, if that's your first, it's what you're gravitating towards first. The analogy I would use is if you're a grade school kid and the first book you open is like a neurosurgery book <laughs> or something, <laughs> I was like, that's the most inaccessible difficult music to understand and, yeah. and absorb, you know, and you're going right there to Zappa, right to the most <laughs> right. And it's like abstract. It, and if and I look at the charts today and I go, are you kidding? <laughs> yeah. You know, it's just wow. Yeah. Yeah. What what a loss that was to but but Dweezil seems to be kind of carrying on the the family torch. He has and I gotta tell you, because I've seen I've seen probably every one of Dweezil's shows when he when he comes to town or even when he's not in you know, I follow him around to San Diego or, you know, when he goes up north. And it's just technically speaking, he's, he's much better than Frank, except Frank had such emotion when he played. Frank played with emotion. Dweezil is, is technically incredible. Yeah. But it's, and it's, and that band, that band he has is just tight, you know, as Frank's bands were. Mm -hmm. And I got to see Frank a few times as well. But it was, um, yeah, I've, I've seen Dweezil quite a number of times. So any of you listening to this or watching this, you know, look up Frank's music, you know, go to Overnight Sensation or One Size Fits All, just incredible musicianship. And if, you know, if you're a fan of music then, and you don't know Frank's, Frank's music, then, you know, I, I really say that you should go listen and pick up some albums. Definitely. So how did you make your way into acting? Well, I grew up, uh, my dad is a Broadway playwright and he ran a theater company in New York called the uh, Hudson Guild Theater Company, which was right down the block from my school. And when I would go, I would, instead of going home, I would go to the theater, which was right down the block and I would sit and do my homework in, in the pews, I guess. And I would watch him work with the actors all day long. And I was just fascinated where, you know, where, you know, watching him direct and watching him get out of the actors, what, what he could get out. And I was one day, I think it was eight years old. I said, well, I want to do that. And he said, okay, you know, so he, he, you know, my dad was a little, little, little tough, you know, tough Irishman. And, uh, and so he, you know, he worked me pretty good. And he was like, all right, this, this kid's got some natural talent. And I auditioned for this uh, off-Broadway play at the, at the Roundabout Theater, which is now a Broadway, considered Broadway. And I got cast when I was eight years old in this really bizarre piece called A Piece of Fog. And that was kind of my introduction to the stage. And then it just kind of blossomed from there. I wound up doing a, a TV series when I was 13 years old called Ivan the Terrible for CBS. It was terrible. But I got a very, very quick ed education from all the great Borscht Belt comedians who were, you know, in the show. And they taught me like everything about sitcoms and beats. And, you know, it was just a, an incredible education. And then the big break came when I was 15. I, I started in a uh, Bernardo Bertolucci film called Luna and how that came about was I auditioned for it. And at the time, Liv Ullman was the great actress. Liv Ullman was slated to play the lead in the movie and I was deemed too young for the part. So the casting director put my picture in the reject pile. And when Liv fell out and Jill Clayburgh came in, by accident, Bernardo's wife walked into the wrong room uh, she was looking for the, for the exit to go to the bathroom and she walked into this other room and she literally saw my picture standing there on the top of the reject pile. Wow. And she picked it up and she <laughs> looked at it and she showed it to Bernardo and she said, this, she told this all to me, of course, you know, post film. And she said to Bernardo, she goes, this is the kid. Wow. And so they called me back 
and I came in and everybody had been sucking up to, to Bernardo because he was Italian and they played soccer. And, they, and so he's asking me all these questions. And I was just this naive kid who was just very open and honest. And he was like, well, what's your favorite sport? I was like, baseball. He was like, really? Tell me about that. <laughs> and I was just, I went on and on and on and on about baseball and the Yankees and blah, blah, blah. And, and he said, okay. So he tested me with eight others. And by the time lunch arrived there, it was down to three. And it turned out to be me, um, my friend Todd Graff, who's, who's an actor and, and now a director, and a friend of mine. So we were up against each other and somebody else. And they eventually narrowed it down to myself and Todd. And after hours and hours of going back and forth with, with Jill, I got cast in lead. And literally the next day, they called my, my parents and they were like, well, we need to come over and talk to you about this because it's, you know, the, the, the film subject is a little heavy. And <laughs> my mom to and say dad, the least. <laughs> yeah, and, and my mom and dad, you know, they, they were, you know, they came over and they were like, "We've seen Last Django. We know what we're getting into." Okay, so, <laughs> so, that's all you need to see. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So, so they came over, and literally, like two days later, on Fourth of July, I was on a plane to Italy, and, and with, with with my dad, and, and I was just like, I had no idea what was happening, and I spent four months uh, in Italy shooting shooting the film. Well, I, I watched it last night, the Italian version on YouTube, because I couldn't find it anywhere else. I, I was looking it, for it, it on it just, streaming services. It, it, just, it just came out. It just came out on... Uh, oh, it's on DVD yeah, now. Okay. Yeah. Okay, great. Yeah, I'll check out the, the English language version. But yeah, I, I watched it in Italian and of course didn't really understand some, but I could, I could definitely, I read the Wikipedia description of it, so I knew what was happening as I was watching and I was struck at... A couple of things. Uh, first of all, as a first-time film actor, you are involved in this film, this Berlucci drama, that I would imagine at the time, you may not be understanding where it's going because these scenes are so long and he lets things simmer. There's not a lot of action and there's a lot of emotion but not a lot of action. So at the time when you were in the film, were you grasping what Bernardo was trying to accomplish or the storyline? Was it sinking in for you at the age of 15? No freaking idea. <laughs> 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 you kind of got a grasp of it. I was still a virgin at the time. You know, I lost my virginity on the film on my 16th birthday. Uh, <laughs> so I was, getting, I was getting a very, very fast education into sexuality. Yeah. And... My mom was there with me. My dad was there the first month and then my mom came and my mom was very, very open and we had a lot of discussions about it and it was, it was, it was a quick education. Yeah. You know, like, like, like any, like anything in life, you know, we get, we get thrown into it. We, we, we go, you know, okay, <laughs> all right, here we, here we go. Yeah. You know, you, you, you learn and you learn quickly. It's just like, you know, the first time after you, you know, you pass the bar. The first time you were ever in front of a judge, you were like, you know, you're nervous. But then, of course, after the first time, you know, it, it gets easier and easier and easier the more the more times you're in front of the front of the judge. Mm -hmm. So it was kind so, of good. Yeah. The, the second observation I had, sorry to interrupt you. There, no. um, but uh, yeah, the second observation I had was probably the more obvious one that most people would ask, which is how did your parents and the director and you navigate these scenes where you are basically in very sexually pr provocative scenes with this adult woman, Jill Clayburgh, and um, the legality of it I'm wondering about because I don't know if Italy just has more lax laws or what, how were you navigating that and your parents and Bernardo, do you remember? I think, it, you know, at the, at the time, again, this was 
77. So it wasn't, you know, the 70s were a very weird time. You know, coming out of, out of the 60s and the 70s was very strange, a strange period to, for everybody to, to grow up in. You know, at the time, it wasn't as, as bad, I think, until, uh, uh, what was the Brooke Shields movie that, that, that came out? The, the, was it the Louis Mal film? Oh, uh, Blue Lagoon. No, no, no. Before, before, before that. Oh, the, before that. Yeah, the one Lolita. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it was, it was, you know, there wasn't so much of a controversy until that film came out where it wasn't, it wasn't as, as prevalent as it is now, you know, the, the sexual predators and, 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 right. and, and such. It was kind of, it was kind of, eh, you know, it was back then it was understood. Now it's, it's, you know, it's, you know, it, back then it was, it was called. It's taboo. Right. Yeah. Right. So it was, it was, it was a, it was a different time. So it was, it was a little more understandable, you know, so to speak back then mm -hmm. where, you know, everybody was kind of coming off the sixties where it was free love and, and everything else. And so it kind of, you know, it was the, the, the tail end of the, of the seventies. So it was, again, it was, it was kind of understood. And, and again, Europeans, uh, Americans are very, are very, you know, tight when it comes to sexuality. Europeans are incredibly open. If any of you have ever spent spend time in Europe, it's very it's very free. It's not it's not it's not as as as, as emotional mm -hmm. as we are in, in in America. It's very kind of hey, you know, let's let's get together and let's you know let's have sex. And, and you know, America's like, oh no, we 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 can't do that. But there in 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 Europe, it was very hey, you know, let's let's just have a good time. And I think that's if you look at that that the films from the from that era, it sparks to it. Whereas in America, we were still kind of, you know, very, very, you know, conservative, so to speak, compared to the rest of the world or most of the world or compared to Europe anyway. When the film was released, were you tuned in to like reviews and how well it was received? And were you kind of paying attention to that aspect of the, uh, the movie? I was completely overwhelmed. Uh, when the film came out, I was 17 and it was New York and it was 79 and it opened the New York Film Festival. And I had so much smoke blown up my ass. Can I say ass on the, on the podcast? Sure, you can, yeah, fully. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, you know, I, re I remember the, the, pre the premiere in New York. It, it opened the, uh, the New York Film Festival, a closed, closing night at the New York Film Festival. And I had Richard Gere come up to me and just tell me how great I was and my performance was. And Warren Beatty came up to me and, and was just like, God damn, kid. You know, and so, and, and I got the greatest lesson. I got the greatest lesson from Warren Beatty because I literally said, can, can I ask you something, Mr. Beatty? He smiled. He said, anything. I said, how do you do it? And he said, do what? He goes, how do you get all those beautiful women? And he smiled. <laughs> he smiled at me and he said, just let them talk. Uh, <laughs> and great it's, advice. It's, it's worked. Great, great advice. <laughs> and then Woody Allen was inviting me to his, to his place to, 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 to go, you know, party with him and his friends. And Diane Keaton was coming. I'm like, holy shit. You know, as a 17-year-old, it's like my mind was blown. And then what happened was cocaine. Oh. And, uh, and, uh, 80s. Eight, yeah. 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 70s late, and late, 80s, late 70s, yeah. early 80s. And, you know, I was invited to Studio 54. And so when you give a 17 year old that and the great reviews and, you know, and, and whatnot, and, uh, and you're hanging out and, and Andy Warhol wants to interview you. And, and, and I'm, I'm just like, my, you know, I was just like, couldn't handle, just didn't, didn't handle it at all. And it's, it's, it just, it was a disaster. <laughs> How long did that disaster last? What was that time frame? 
yeah, it was, it was, it was, you know, it's, you, you get, you get caught up in the, in the hype. And, and I mean, I moved to, uh, to Los Angeles. I made a bet with my parents. I said, I said, if I can make more money than you, you know, can I move to Los Angeles? And they were like, yeah, sure. So shortly after the film, I went to Los Angeles because that's where the fun is. And, you know, I had the greatest agent in the world. Ed Lamato was my agent who was, who was uh, uh, Richard Gere's agent, who was uh, Mel Gibson's agent, who was Denzel's agent, who was Michelle Pfeiffer's agent. So I went to his house and I'm hanging out with all of them and I'm like, one of these things just doesn't belong here. <laughs> and like Madeline Kahn became my friend. I'm like, holy shit. So, and wow. you know, and then Los Angeles in the 80s was quaaludes and, and lots of partying. Mm-hmm. And so we partied and we partied pretty freaking hard. And then... River Phoenix died. And that was kind of the end of the party. River Phoenix died. John Belushi died. And so it was kind of like, uh, okay, it's, it's over. Kind of a wake up call. Yeah, it was, it was definitely wake up. The real wake up call for me was Dennis Quaid was a friend of mine and he had been dating my cousin Leah Thompson at the time and they were living together. And he wanted me to come in and audition for uh, a role in a, in a film that really launched his career called The Big Easy. Hmm. I remember that one. I, I said, it was fantastic. And I said to Dennis, I said, well, let me come in. I don't want to, you know, I want to get this part on my own. I don't want, I don't want to get this part because I'm a friend of yours. He was like, okay, okay, whatever you want, Matt. So I went in and auditioned for it and crushed it. And the casting director at the time, Lynn, the great Lynn Stallmaster, who was one of the top casting directors in Hollywood at the time, turned to Dennis and again, not knowing that we were friends. And he said, don't hire him. And he was like, why not? He was like, he's, he's effed up. He's, he's on drugs and you know, he's a disaster. Hmm. And of course, Dennis told me this and that was my wake up call. And so that was it. How did they know just by looking at you or by reputation? Reputation. What, what, what really, what really happened was I did an interview with Interview Magazine, Warhol's magazine, with a couple of his people from, uh, from the factory. And basically, they got me really, really high, so to speak, and asked me questions that they probably shouldn't have asked. And being the open, honest person that I was, I answered them all. And of course, they printed them all. Uh-huh. And I basically pissed off a lot of people oh. uh, and basically admitted to, you know, to being this fucked up kid. Um, sorry, messed up kid. And so, oh, you can, you can cuss. Oh, good. It's, it's a podcast. New Yorker. (laughs) And so that, that pretty much ruined my career at the time. And it took me, it took me a while to kind of get it back and to kind of prove to everybody that, Hey, I'm, I'm cool. I'm, I'm clean. I'm fine. You know, I'm, I'm back, you know, we we all, we all deserve a second chance. And so Eileen Starger, who was a casting director, really took a, a liking to me and put me in a, in a couple of films. And that kind of relaunched my, my, my career. Yeah. Was The Wraith one of those films? That was, yeah. Yeah. That, that was, that was the, the, the first film that she cast me. And it was, it was interesting because the description in, in, the, uh, in, the, in the script and in the breakdown was a blonde, blue-eyed hunk. Well, let's, you know, <laughs> strike one, strike two, and strike three. And I was a skinny little kid and the director looked at me, Mike Marvin, who's one of my best friends today. He looked at me, he looked at Eileen and was like, what, what the hell is this? And she was like, he's a great actor. He's a great actor. Just trust me. And I did my thing and he was like, wow, he's fantastic. And I, I beat out a lot of people. I beat out Johnny Depp. So direct director, uh, Mike, Mike told <laughs> nice. me so. So yeah. <laughs> That's great. Is that where you met Nick? 
Yeah, yeah. We, you know, it's very, it's very odd that you know, you you, you do a film, you do, you you get very intimate on these films for you know a couple of months, and then you kind of go your separate ways, and you know, you might have a friend, you know, or two, you know, kind of acquaintance, but we all became best of friends for years. I mean, I'm still friends with Charlie Sheen to this day. You know, Nick, I've known since since the film, and we've worked together now. Well, if you can you can see behind me, you know. Oh too. yeah. Two of the three films, I've done every one of his films, and we've just been just this incredible collaboration, you know, over the over the years, and you know, watched our families grow, and you know, wives and girlfriends, and we've just been incredibly supportive of each other for God, how, how long ago was that? For thirty years ago, thirty plus years. Yeah, yeah. So well, looking at the, you know, the I when I was interviewing Nick Cassavetes, I was looking at his filmography, and then I was talking to Chris. Kincaid mm-hmm. and 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 I, I was looking at your filmography and then I'm seeing all of this crossover and I'm seeing Clint Howard is popping up in a lot of Nick's movies yeah. and Mike Marvin and there's just this it, it looked to me like there was a family this very tight-knit tribe of friends that were sticking together you know as much as they could in the industry is that how you remember the last 30 years is just you meet this core group of friends in the in the 80s and like Nick and Mike and and uh, these folks that you acted with and then you're just in those same circles for for decades it's it's loyalty it's very i i've found in my years and years and years in 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 hollywood that you know loyalty is something you don't often very find and nick has been incredibly loyal mike has been loyal and i'm a very i'm a very loyal person to a fault and Nick grew up with obviously John Cassavetes, who basically his ma- his mantra was work with your friends. And if you look at John's films, he worked with the same people over and over and over again. And I think mm-hmm. that kind of trickled down to Nick. And you know, Nick has been incredibly loyal. And again, we really work well together. And I think it's also he trusts me. I trust him. I don't blow smoke up his ass. I tell him honestly what I think. And, he, you know, when, when I don't like something, I, 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 I tell him and he doesn't like it, but he knows, he always knows I'm going to tell him the truth instead of blowing smoke up his ass. I'm not going to, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. I'm just going to, I mean, I've had, you know, films that he's wanted to do and I go, Nick, I hate this movie. I, I don't want to do this movie. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I, I don't know why you're doing that, why you want to do this movie. It was all because I like it. I'm passionate about it. I go, I don't, I don't understand why, because I want to do it. But that's our relationship. And that's, you know, it's been a, a, a fantastic Keith Richards, Mick Jagger kind of yeah. collaboration for, for years. So that's how, well, really, if you look back, that's probably how you got the part in Luna is your honesty with Bernardo Bertolucci. Yeah. Just, yeah. you know, you're not trying to tell him what he wants to hear. You're telling him what you really feel. I, I think that's I, that's how I got the TV series as well because I remember walking into the audition and you know, that I, I can't remember what the question but I remember they asked me a question and I answered honestly and I remember them just all cracking up and uh, and I, I wound up doing a uh, at the same time of the TV series a Broadway play called Legend which <laughs> opened and closed in one night <laughs> and I got that role as well because the the director made me run around the stage and then they asked me a question and I just answered honestly and I made them crack up. And so that's kind of that's kind of helped me along the way in my entire life is just is just being just being blatant, you know, not not sugarcoating. Right. Which which hope I'm hoping in this on this podcast is is they're getting a sense of who I am and what I am as well. Yeah. 
I guess we have to contrast that with uh, with the drug fueled honesty in the Andy Warhol interview. <laughs> yeah. We got to be a little bit careful. <laughs> yeah, I learned, with your honesty. learned my lesson. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, so tell me about casting and being a casting director and how that evolved from acting into casting actors and films. It was it was interesting. I was doing some really bad television shows, and I was I was about to turn thirty and. I remember I was on the set of some really bad TV show that I was doing. And I remember thinking, oh, I'm just doing this for the money. And it was good money. But I remember, think, I remember feeling so unsatisfied. And so I wanted to do something else. And so I went to UCLA film school and you know, wanted to learn everything there was about, about producing and production. And quickly realized I knew everything because I'd you know, grown up on, on sets my entire life. So they weren't really teaching me anything new. And so I had a, a friend of mine who worked for Barry Levinson, and she asked Barry if she could, you know, hook me up and get me. I said, look, I'll be a PA. I'll sweep floors. I'll go get your laundry. I'll do anything. I just want to be on the set behind the scenes learning everything about what everybody does. I want to know what a gaffer was. I want to know what a gaffer is, you know, and what he, and, and what he did and what the electrician did and what, you know, what, every, what everybody's function was and how to deal with people. And so she introduced me to Mark Johnson, who in his own right is a phenomenal producer, and I've done a couple of projects with him since. And he said, okay, you know, let, me, let me see what I can, I can find for you. And he called me a couple days later and he said, well, they need some help in casting. You know, do you want to work? You know, I said, okay, I'll work in casting, but you know, when it's over, you know, I want to work on the set. He was like, okay, okay, you know, you know, calm down. So Ellen Chenoweth, I worked for Ellen Chenoweth, the great Ellen Chenoweth, and just busted my ass and, and, you know, I knew actors and she knew, and, you know, pretty much everybody knew me from, from Luna. So she was like, why are you doing this? I was like, I just, you know, I want to, I want to do something new. She really took me under, under her wing. And I, again, I, I worked at, you know, the Robin Williams film Toys, which is a project I worked on and really helped her out. And once that was done, I, you know, I went back to Mark and I was like, okay, okay, I can, you know, ready to sweep floors now. And he said, yeah, we had to give that job to the director's friend or the producer's friend or somebody else. So I went home and cried for two days. And then I get a call from Vicki Thomas, who is who was just honored by the Casting Society of America uh, for being one of the best casting directors in, in, in the world for the project that she's worked on. And so she called me up and she goes, uh, Chenoweth says you're, you're pretty good. I'm like, yeah, yeah. She goes, can you come down and, and, and interview with me? I was like, sure. I was like, when? She goes, now. And so I said, okay. So I drove down to Paramount Studios and this beautiful African-American woman, just gorgeous woman. And she said, look, I've just come off of working for Francis Ford Coppola on Dracula and he kind of beat the shit out of me. And I just did White Man Can't Jump and I'm, I'm really tired and I'm dealing with this maniac, Adrian Line, on this film called Indecent Proposal. And I just need somebody to kind of babysit him and just take the pressure off of me. I was like, give me the ball. Give me the ball. Nice. And I said, I said, when do you want me to start? And she was like, now. <laughs> I was like, okay. <laughs> and it, I was introduced to Adrian and Adrian knew who I was from, from, I was like, you know, what the hell are you doing here? I was like, I'm here to, I'm here to help you out. And so I had a very, very interesting relationship with, with Adrian. And one of the first things that Adrian had me do uh, after we had cast uh, Demi and, um, and uh, Woody was he comes to me and he says, listen, Matt, he says, I, I, I need you to find me this great Brit guy. 
He goes, I need you to find me like, uh, like two people to, you know, that, that look like Woody, that look like Woody and, and to me, and, and I, need, I need them to jam. I said, what do, you, what do you mean you need them to jam? He said, I, I want them to jam, man. You know, and you know, right? I was like, you want them to have sex? I was like, yeah, 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 yeah. I was like, that's, I said, Adrian, that's, that's pornography. He goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. You can find that for me, right? <laughs> so, I, so I go to Vicky and I goes, he wants me to find these two actors to, to have sex, you know, these two doubles. To, and it was like, just give Adrian what he wants. So it turns out I was, I was playing baseball out here with a guy named Randy West, who just happened to be the Robert Redford of the adult entertainment industry. So I said, uh, you want to come in and audition for a, you know, a feature film? He goes, hell yeah. So I introduced him to Adrian and Adrian flips out because he looks just like Robert Redford. I mean, he's, you know, he, he's, he could be, he, he was the, you know, the Robert Redford of the adult entertainment industry. So I said, okay. So he was happy. So now I got to find the, the Demi for him to have sex with on camera. <laughs> so, so I bring him, I, I find this girl dead ringer for Demi. And she's as dumb as a box of rocks. And Adrian blows up at me and starts cursing me out. And, you know, the pressures of being director. And I'm letting him take it out of me. He goes, what the hell are you bringing me? You know, he's, he's screaming. And I looked at him and I say, Adrian, if you talk to me that way again, I'm going to come over to the other side of the desk and I'm going to beat the shit out of you. Ah. And I, as soon as I said it, I went, oh, fuck, I'm fired. And it was that moment where you look at each other, where he's pissed off and he's got that look in his eye. And I'm like, okay, okay, you're fired. And then he just breaks out of this big grin and says, I like you. There's your honesty again. And so he was like, and you know, anytime, because this was before the internet, this was before, you know, everything. So literally when he was in Vegas, I had to drive all, <laughs> I had to drive, drive all of the audition tapes to Vegas and hang out and, and wait for Adrian in his room and show him all the tapes. And we had a, we had a great time. And then when we had the, we had the, um, the table read with uh, when we hired Redford, it was Redford, Demi, and, and, and Woody. And Adrian called me in to read all the other roles and the stage directions and everything. So it was just basically the you know, five of us and the producers in a room in Vegas reading the script. And I'm like, oh my God, this is fantastic. And that was kind of the, the launch of my casting career. And I owe, I owe it all to Vicky because I got to work you know, I, I jumped from that to, to working on Ed Wood with, with Tim Burton. I mean, are you kidding me? Oh man. So it was, it was, you know, and I, I got, I worked with, you know, and then Jerry Bruckheimer and it was just this incredible quick, fast education. And again, I knew a lot of actors from my days as an actor. So I would bring them in and introduce them to, to, to Vicky and Jeannie McCarthy, who in her right man is a phenomenal casting director as well, was working with uh, Vicky as well. So we had this incredible casting team. I mean, it was like an A plus casting team. And we just worked on these amazing films and we, you know, put together, you know, Con Air with amazing cast in, in that and just- and Nicolas just, Cage. Yeah. And just broke all these careers. And so that was kind of the, the, the launch of, of my career. And about four years later, it was, you know, it was time to move on and Jeannie was moving on and, and it was time for me to move on. And I asked my, my former agent, Nancy, who worked at an at a, at a agency called Ambrosio Mortimer. And they were going through some problems and she was looking for a career change after 20 years. And I loved Nancy because she was like a great agent for me. And I said, well, why don't you come work with me? And she's like, what do you mean? She's like, come work in casting. She's like, I know nothing about casting. I said, you know actors, don't you? She goes, yeah. And so she said, okay. And so we branched off on our own, formed our own company. It was like, okay, now what? 
<laughs> now we kind of got to got to get some get some jobs. So we, we did a couple of little films, and then our, our our big break came from a woman named Valerie McCaffrey, who was the head of casting at New Line at the time, and she introduced us to this young whippersnapper named Brett Ratner. Ah, Brett. And Brett as this, you know, the Rush Hour movies. Yeah. And uh, he was doing Rush Hour and his energy was just fantastic. And I loved his energy. I was like, oh, yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. And he loved us because, you know, I, I was still young and, and aggressive at the time. He, he took a spark to me and, and, yeah, we worked our asses off. And he was very, Brett is incredibly demanding and saw that, yeah, we worked our asses off. And he was like, I need every rock unturned. And so we unturned every rock to, to help him out. And then New Line was, was impressed and the film was a hit. And so they gave me a bunch of films. And I think I did seven or eight films for New Line. And that was just my film you know, skyrocketed. And then, of course, you know, The Notebook came out. That was kind of like the, the, the icing on the cake. Yeah, yeah. That's one of the, the quintessential casting I mean, if you look at the casting choices in that film, it could have been a completely different trajectory, I think, for that movie if it wasn't Gosling and McAdams. Sure. I mean, it, it wasn't Gosling and McAdams to begin with. Oh, who was it to begin <laughs> it, with? It was, I think at the time, it was, it was going to be, um, oh God, the kid's name is escaping me from Star Wars. Yeah, he was, he was going to be in it, but he, he wasn't the, the greatest of actors, I'm sorry to say, back, back then. I think he proved himself a little later on, but he was he was the, the one of the originals. I think Reese Witherspoon was was one of the originals, but she she felt she was too old. And then uh, Nick went and met with Kate Beckinsale, and it wasn't quite a chemistry fit between between the two of them. So Nick turned to me and said, "Who you got?" And we were doing this uh, this other film. We were trying to get this other film off the ground about a year before, and I introduced him to Ryan Gosling, who my partner flipped out over when she saw this little film called uh, uh, Believer, where Ryan played this like neo-Nazi. Mm. And she just flipped for him, and he came in and met, and we fell in love with him. And so he was the first person we, we mentioned. Ryan Gosling was like, absolutely. So he came in, was so smart, was just really right, and New Line was smart enough to know that he was the next up and comer. And so they were like, okay, we like Ryan, but you got to find the girl. And so we started our search for the girl and we started interviewing everybody. And I worked with Britney Spears for a couple of days. She came in at the height of her career and worked with her. I still have those tapes, which I have, I've shown my students, but I haven't released it to any, to anybody, <laughs> but my, my students get to, get to, get to see it. And, oh, that's fun. and she came, she came in and like a whole bunch of other, we, we flew everywhere interviewing actresses on on their sets what's what's her name uh justin timberlake's wife jessica beale jessica beale yeah we flew she she was she was doing texas chainsaw massacre and so we flew down to 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 texas to to where they were shooting and, and in her trailer we auditioned her then we flew to new york and interviewed all the you know the top people in in new york and meanwhile nancy and, and my agent at the time was rachel mcadams agent at the time. And, and Rachel had just come out in this Rob Schneider film called The Hot Chick. Hmm. And we didn't, we didn't want to tell Nick, you know, hey, she's the girl from The Hot Chick. She should be starring in this film. So we're like, eh, you know. <laughs> so Kenny, her agent at the time, called up Nancy and says, hey, I've got this, this girl. Will you just meet her? And Nancy said, sure, I'll, you know, I'll, we'll do anything for you, Kenny. We love you. So Rachel came in, met with Nancy. Nancy was like, 
yeah, this, this girl's got something. So I said, here's 14 pages. Come back on Sunday. This was on a Friday. Come back on Sunday and, <laughs> and come in an audition. So we fly in. We, this was a Saturday. We spent all day auditioning people in New York and flew back on the, on the red eye, got barely a couple of hours of sleep. And we, were, and we had all this, this big session set up with all the heavy hitters. You name them back then, they were, they were there. And sat there and we looked at the list of everybody that's coming in. And we're like, who the fuck is Rachel McAdams? And Nancy was like, I liked her. I met her. It's 15 minutes. You know, let's give her a shot. All right. Nobody knows who she is. Rest is history. Mm-hmm. You know, on, online is like one, one scene that, that, that they've shown. But no, she literally, there's three scenes that, again, I have never released uh, that I only show my students. But it was literally a 14-page audition. And she rushed it. Never in my, in my history, up until Cat Williams came in and blew me away, have I ever had an, an actor come in and just floor me. Hmm. And she came in and floored me and the rest is history. As you may have noticed, there are great resources and advice mentioned in all our episodes. And for many of them, we actually collect all of these resources for you in one easy place. Our newsletter. You can go to dreampathpod.com newsletter to join. It's not fancy, just an email about each week's episode, featured artists, and resources to help you on your journey. Now, back to the interview. So, I don't understand much about the casting process and how a casting agency gets paid and works with studios and directors. Can you tell my listeners the process from start to finish of, okay, we have, we're, we've been hired to cast this film. How soon before shoot do you actually begin the process of finding talent? How do you do it? And then what type of contract do you enter into? Is it a flat rate? Is it an hourly? And I'm not asking for numbers, but I'm just curious about that relationship because I would imagine if you're casting an independent film, that's much different than if you're casting a big you know, Marvel movie or something like that for a variety of reasons. You've got a lot more decision makers and people to answer to with the bigger films. Oh, yeah. But can you tell us more about that dynamic? Back in the day, basically, we're always the first on and the first off, which is really depressing sometimes because, you know, when everything's just about to go, we're like, okay, we need your offices, get out. <laughs> so we're always generally the first on. I think it's, it's the casting directors and the DP and maybe the first AD who are always the first on. So, you know, there's barely anybody in, in the offices uh, we're the ones that, that sit down with the director and everything's calm because each week that goes by, the director gets a little more tighter and tighter and tighter until he explodes because the director is always under tremendous pressure. So we're kind of there to guide him or her along and to collaborate and to argue our points and the director will argue his or her points and to basically, it's a puzzle. And you have to, everything has to be right. It has to, it has to look good. I mean, if you, if those of you who watch movies and TVs, you go, you, you, everything's perfect. We just watch them, you know, but everything is meticulously planned out and argued about and put together. Cause otherwise, you know, you can't have two people that look alike cause the audience will be confused. Okay. So we're always the first on and you sit down and we always have the director's attention. You stand, you make your lists of, of everybody that you, that you think will be, will be right for the, for the part. And then you call the agents and you set up meetings and independently, you know, you, you make offers and eventually somebody will stick. But what happens is back in the day, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to, I'm, my brain is working faster than my mouth. 
before you used to get you used to get like a flat rate or you get you get like a step deal where okay you know we'll pay you this amount of money until we get going and then once the film gets going we'll pay you this this amount years ago and i i won't bore you with all the details but i was on a a, a plane when i was doing rush hour 2 and i was talk i was sitting with uh one of the uh the teamsters and he was talking about union this and union that and i'm like we're not union he's like what do you mean i was like we're not union Long story short, by the time I landed back in America, I was introduced to the Teamsters and fought with the Teamsters for five years to get a contract with the studios for the casting directors. And so now, oh. so now all the casting directors are union, and so nobody can screw us over because casting directors used to get screwed over royally. Mm. And so thanks to the wonderful Steve Dayan, who's now the president of the, of the Teamsters, he put together an incredible package for, for the casting director. So now, even if you're independent, there's rates right. you know, f- for all of us. And so we, we can't quite get screwed over because they have to sign a deal you know, with, with the casting directors. So realistically, as of, as of now, it's, it's become a lot tougher than it, than it was. You know, now everything is pre-sales and, and tax credits. So it's, it's, it's a bit more difficult to, to, to cast a film because you need those names and everybody's doing the same thing. And there's charts everywhere and lists everywhere that you can, you know, you can get on the internet that, you know, has foreign value. And there's a lot of brokers out there now who, you know, who will broker a film and they'll, they'll sell the territory, so to speak. And this is long and boring for your listeners and viewers, <laughs> but so to speak, basically we, we're on first. It's usually a 10-week deal. You'll, you'll kind of get your, your name settled and then the rest of the cast kind of fills itself out. And you use a service called Breakdown Services and you put down you know, what you're looking for and all the pictures and resumes come in as opposed to how it used to be where the agents used to come to your office and, and pitch. And we'd say, oh yeah, we like him, we like her. Oh, this guy's interesting. Tell me about him, tell me about her. Okay, we'll meet them. You know, Now everything is... You can do self-tapes and everything's online, which is wonderful. But basically, you know, you get, you get to pick and choose and you set everybody up and you still talk to agents and everybody comes in the audition and, and you, your director makes, makes their selections and, and your film is cast. Yeah. And if you're part of the union, you're going to get a minimum rate. Yeah. yeah. Right. And yeah. then if you're really well-known in the industry and sought after, you're probably going to get paid more. Yeah. I mean, it, I mean, look, it's just, it's generally how it works. I, it, it's, we're not making as, as much as, as we used to. I think back in the late eighties and nineties when it was when it was it was it was a lot of fun. We we made a very good living. No complaints at all. Now it's very corporate. You know, everybody has to, you know, everything is, you know, by the book, by the you know, it's one, two, three, four, five, you know, there's six or seven people having to, you know, make a decision on one liners. So it's, mm-hmm. it, it's a little, it's a little tougher these days and definitely not as much fun where it, you know, it, it was really a director's medium and it still is in the sense for the independent world, but the, the studio wise, it was definitely very, it, it changed. It, it very much changed. One of the most, uh, di- when I applied to law school, there was this law school admission test that I had to take and the most difficult types of questions were called logic games and logic games were there's a dinner party and there's 15 people, and here are the rules. You ha- you're in charge of the seating chart. Right. Susan has to sit at the head of the table. Jerry cannot sit closer than two seats away from Susan, that type of thing. Right. And what you described to me 
sounds like a really complicated logic game. <laughs> you know, all of these these moving parts that you're trying to get a handle on with the director and the producers and the actors, and there may be a great fit. You know, Rachel McAdams and Ryan Gosling might be perfect, but maybe Ryan's attached to another project, and so that's going to slow down when the shoot starts. And man, it just sounds like a, kind of a nightmare, frankly. <laughs> to it's, be, it, it's not you know. easy. It's, it's definitely, it's, it's not easy. I mean, I'm going through it now because, you know, I think independent films, it's been really, really tough over the years to get any independent film financed just because of the criteria. Yeah. Uh, and, and the agents know it. They know that it's, it's foreign sales and tax credits now. And, and, and so they know what their, their clients are worth. And so, you know, you, you, you make your pitch and, you know, they, they all want to make sure that their clients are going to get paid and these are not going to fall apart because, you know, it's, it's everybody's doing pretty much the same thing and saying, well, you know, I've got this great film and yes, I've got, I've got the financing, I've got the financing, but in reality, you don't have the financing until the star kicks in. So it's kind of this roundabout catch 22 that you're always dealing with and very, very frustrating. And it's, it's difficult to get anything made, but I think nowadays, if you can find a film where you can make, you know, for half a million to a million dollars, you're going to be golden. Hmm. You know, so you're going to you're going to start to see a lot of road pictures pretty soon. You're going to see you're going to see <laughs> you're going to see Easy Rider again. You know, yeah, you know, good good old motorcycle movies. You know, so what are I, you know when I look at your filmography, I notice kind of a lot of what I noticed about Nick's filmography because you work together a lot with him. One thing that struck me is the new talent that emerges from these films like Alpha Dog and The Notebook. Mm -hmm. What did you see in Amanda Seyfried and Justin Timberlake, <laughs> Camille Hirsch, Ben Foster? I mean, Ben Foster is one of those guys that every movie I see him in, he just blows me away with his intensity. Yeah. And also, you know, he, he doesn't have to be intense in every movie, but there's, he's just this effortless guy. But what did you see in these actors that led to casting them, and now they're just huge stars. Ben Foster, I had my eye on since he was 18 years old. And I have a picture, which I show my students, I have a whole collection of first pictures and resumes. And I had Ben's first picture and resume, and he had come off of a Barry Levinson film as well. And I had him come in and, and meet me, and he was just so incredibly smart. And he looked at my refrigerator, and, and he was like, you got any beer in there? I was like, I sure do. And he goes, can I have one? And so we just literally sat on the floor, drank a beer and just shot the shit. And I was like, I fucking love this kid. And so when Alpha Dog came around a few years later, he's the very first actor I brought to Nick. And Nick didn't, wow. did, didn't know who he was. I said, you've got to meet this kid. And so Nick came in. Nick generally doesn't read anybody. He just likes meeting actors. And, and he, he, he said his criteria with me is like, only bring me three actors because I want to hire them all. And, you know, the, everybody thinks you know, they, their, their, their client got, got the role because they have such a great time with Nick that I have to go, no, no, that's just how Nick is. He didn't get the role. You know, we're just meeting people, you know, tell them to hold on. But with Ben, Ben came in and sat down with Nick and was exactly how I expected Ben to be just incredibly bright, smart, terrific. And Nick said, so which role you like, you know, thinking that he wanted to play Jesse James Hollywood, you know, the lead. And he goes, I like this role. And Nick perked up and went, really? Tell me why. Hmm. He said, because I think I can, do, I can do a lot with this role. This is the kind of role that, that I want to play. And, 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 and proceeded to tell Nick everything about him. And literally, Nick said, role's yours. And Fred looked at him and was like, really? He was like, yeah, role's yours. It's yours. Wow. And so that was, that was the first, first one. Amanda, which is, which is, this is a funny story. 
Amanda, what her agent was a gal by the name of Abby Bluestone. And we went to high school together in New York. And Abby was like my only friend in high school because we went to the professional children's school because we were all professionals. And Abby called me up and she goes, you got to meet this girl. You, you got to meet this girl. I said, like, okay, you know, I'll do anything for Abby. So, so this girl, Amanda, walks in. I had never met her. Nick had never met her. She sits down and proceeds to cry. And she was just like, she was 17 years old. And she was like, I don't want to do your movie. I just want to go home. I just, I just miss my family. And she was like crying the entire, <laughs> she literally cried the entire time. For real. For real. Like a real like cry. Really, okay. like, like, it's like, she was like, please don't hire me. I don't want to be in your movie. I just want to go home. And so, of course, Nick decided to torture her and kept her there for an hour. And she was just so lovely and vulnerable. And so we had to, we just, we had to find something in the movie for her. And how can you not work with her? How can you not? And, and, and he was just like, so there's nudity in this movie. You have a problem with that? I don't care. I don't care. She was 17 at the time. She was just going to be 18 by the time she was shooting. And so we immediately, we immediately were like, I was like, Abby, she's in the movie. She just let her know she's in the movie. So she went home, got to see her family. And then of course she got really excited. And yeah. uh, pretty much, and I mean, pretty much everybody in that movie became a star. I mean, you know, Amber Heard was in the movie. She just came in and was just like, she was a tornado. Mm-hmm. And it was like, you couldn't have just the energy, just her energy was like, was like oh yeah, she's got to be in the movie. Emil was, was interesting because it was down to Emil and another, another actor. And this other actor, we had hired Ben and this other, this other actor came in and they were aud- auditioning together. And literally what happened was they were doing this intense scene. I think it was one of the, one of the intense scenes in the movie. And they literally got into a fist fight mm. in the, in the audition. It turns out later that they knew it, <laughs> that they knew each other, but you know, right. I'm like, I'm having to go in and break it up. And Nixon, you know, behind the table, laughing his ass off, you know, he's like, I love the intensity. So it was literally down to, to, to Emil or this, or this other guy. And we went with Emil cause Emil was, he was kind of this good looking kind of punky kind of, he fit the part a little better than this other actor who was probably a little bit of, of a better actor, but Emil was kind of softer. So you knew he was, he would kind of fold a little bit as his, as his character. Mm-hmm. Olivia Wilde was another one who nobody really knew. And what had happened with Olivia was she came in and she was just, you know, just wild and open and didn't give a shit about anything. And what happened was, is that we brought back three girls for, for that role. And what we didn't tell them was, we had hired all the guys and we brought all the guys in and they had them sit behind the table and the girls came in and all Nick told the guys to do is to give her shit. Olivia walks in and the first thing she said was like, you know, is, is that a, you know, something, she made some comment about, about one of the guys like having a small penis. And oh, she it, gave and it right back. Gave then. it right, <laughs> right back. And it just kept going on and on and on. The guys were like hooting and hollering and they were like, she's in. She's in. Cause she's one of, she was one of the guys. Yeah. And so, yeah. and so Timberlake, we had wanted, we had met Justin on a previous picture that didn't go and we loved Timberlake and Nick had suggested Justin early on. And I said, hell yes. Uh, I said, anybody who's a musician, let him come in, let him talk to you about it. And he said, can, you know, can I just make this, this character fun? Absolutely. And nobody liked the idea. It was one of those where this is the worst idea. This is horrible. He can't act. He's a, you know, he's a boy band guy. And we're like, no. Mm-hmm. No, we went against we went against everything, and he was phenomenal, just phenomenal in the film. And it's one of the, it's 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 a cast, one of the casts that I'm incredibly proud of, just because everybody, almost everybody on that on that poster, just blew up after that. 
Yeah. You know, and it just, and it just, it, it really to this day makes me incredibly proud to, to, to have put that one together and what a job. I watched it leading up to, to Nick's interview and, and I was struck, it was the second or third time that I'd seen the film, maybe more. Cause it's, it's one of those, those movies that you can go back and watch again once a year and it's still fresh. It still holds up and it's, and it ages well. But one of the things I noticed about the film the last time I watched it was it is a real pressure cooker of a movie with all of the intensity yeah. from all of these actors. And there's also the subtlety and nuance of the performances because, for, for instance, Demiel Hirsch, when he's looking at the intruders in his house and he's watching one of them take a shit on his carpet, yeah. you know, and he's just kind of cowering. Yeah. And you realize this kid is, he's not. A, a badass. He right. he's a lot a lot of bark and no bite. Right, exactly. And and I th- and there were so he needs these people who will do these acts for him because he doesn't have the courage to do it. Right. And it's that type of nuance that I love in these performances, but then it's also like watching a train wreck too because it's like you see these two trains coming at each other and you're like, "Oh shit. Like this this is not going to end well." You just know Right from the beginning, this is not going to end well. <laughs> well, and, and as an audience too, it's like you think, okay, how is this kid going to get out of it? Right. And he doesn't. That's the whole thing is that that's the shock about yeah. to an audience because, you know, you watch these films and you go, okay, somebody's going to come by to save the day. You know, somebody will, somebody will come by. Yeah. You know, some, something will happen and, and this kid will be saved because you, you feel for him. Yeah. And then all of a sudden you just, and, and when, when he's shot, it's so freaking heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. It is, and 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 it's just and it just leaves you just with this with this feeling in your gut of like, oh my god, this didn't end the way I thought it, thought it would. You know, how's this how's this going to play out now? Yeah, and the the beautiful thing about it too is that Nick was able to capture this story, and he just grabs it. It's it's out there, and he grabs it and puts it on paper in a, in a screenplay, right? And he puts this film together in a way that I don't think, you know, you could read this story in a GQ write-up or Vanity Fair or Rolling Stone or something, and it just would not hit the way that it came together through your casting and through Nick's direction. And it's, it's one of the, the best teenage, you know, sort of thriller dramas, I think, of, of that decade. I, I think it still holds up to, and anybody who's, who's listening to this, who's young, should really watch watch that film because it's it's kind of i mean that was you know what 12 13 years ago yeah maybe maybe even longer but it's still holding up to this day you know with with the youth that's you know the 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 anger and the, and the angst that that the youth of today you know and the pressures of the youth of today have and just the 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 lack of parenting yeah that's you know and these these kids you know a lot of them you know they weren't poor kids some of them were well off. Yeah. Most of them, most of them were well off. And wow, the decisions you 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 know you make as 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 a young adult. And if you're a young actor listening to this, it's one that it's a film that you should study, uh, especially all of the characters. You know, in the film, you know, mm-hmm. it's a, it's an it's a, just a, an incredible piece for all of the actors, not just Justin's performance, but you know, and but Emile's and and Ben's and every everybody in the in the film. Yeah, it's, I think it's a good example of the duality of man showing that every character in that film has the capacity for good and evil. In every scene, they have the ability to make a different decision. And it's just almost by chance that they decide to keep going on this path that's going to lead to something horrible happening. 
but they could just as easily make a different decision, pick up the phone right. and call the police or something. Right. And then everything would be completely different. Right. But it's it's a fascinating study in that respect. Well, well, I mean, again, look look at look at what's going on in the world right now. You know, I mean, it's like yeah, the the decisions. You know, it's 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 that close. I, I'm a big believer in we make choices. I, I don't believe in regrets because you 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 make choices. If you decide to cheat on your spouse, well, that's your choice. You know, live with that choice. You you have to suffer the consequences. You know, what choice are you gonna are you gonna make? Are you gonna make the the right choice or the wrong choice? We all make choices. Again, as as a lawyer, you know as well, we make choices. And right. those choices affect <laughs> if you wind up in court or not. Right. So, so yeah, it's it's hard. One 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 uh, actor I, I, I stupidly failed to mention was the incredible Anton Yelchin, the late, great Anton Yelchin, who, again, nobody knew except my partner who had seen him in a film. And they were, they were I can't remember the other actor, they were tr- trying to push on us to, to play that role. And Nancy was was like, no, it's got to be Anton. It's got to be Anton. It's got to be Anton. And Anton came in, and I think it was he was 16 at the time, and he was just so innocent and so beautiful, and just it was like, oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I give I give my partner Nancy full credit for that one. So he passed away. Yeah, he was he. Unfortunately, he was he had a driveway that had a, a steep hill and. He had a Jeep at the top of it, and he thought he had put it in park, Okay, and, and yeah. he didn't, and it, it backed into him and, and crushed him. I remember now. And yeah, I remember the story. Yeah, absolutely incredibly heartbreaking and, and just an incredibly talented. I'm getting choked up just thinking about it. And his mom was just such a sweetheart, just a, a lovely, incredible woman. And to lose, to lose him that early and to lose you know, mm-hmm. everything that, that, that he had done in his career was just, was just was really, really sad. One more casting question sure. before we move on to your acting classes. The She's So Lovely movie. <laughs> yeah. uh, Nick, Nick talked about a, a read or a, an introduction with John Travolta, and I think Sean Penn was there, and there was some drama. I don't know if you heard that interview or not, but with Robin Wright Penn and Sean, and it, were you involved in that particular meeting that Nick was referring to where John Travolta showed up and kind of the, the stars aligned and, and he agreed to take on that role? I was there the day that, that he said yes. I remember that. Okay. I remember that, that, that Sean and Robin had, had come on and, and we, went after to, we went after John and he said yes and everybody, everybody was, was excited. Yeah. I don't know what happened, happened afterwards, but I know Sean really was really, really invested in the film. And I know that, that like after the first day of, of shooting, they had shot John and, and and Nick and Sean had some some difference of opinions, and so we had to do reshot that scene. But I thought they were they were all all terrific. And Gandolfini, the late James, great oh, Jimmy Gandolfini. Yeah, what was, a great actor! Oh, was so great in that. And and yeah, was that one of his, one of his first films? That was one of his. I, I actually, I met I put James. Okay, here's a funny story, and I hope Nick is not listening to this because he's not going to like <laughs> what I have to say, but. I may have told him this, I may not have, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of out myself here. So I was doing a film when I was working with Vicky called Money for Nothing with uh, John Cusack. And we were looking for John's brother in the film. And we met this guy. He was working, at, he was working uh, as a dock worker, I think, in Pittsburgh. And he came in and was just incredible. And Nick had come in in Los Angeles. Of course, Nick was one of my best friends. And it was down to Nick and James Gandolfini to play Cusack's brother. And we watched the tapes, we watched the tapes and, you know, the director said, you know, asked everybody's opinions and, and said, Matt, what do you think? And I went, 
Gandolfini. Yeah. <laughs> so I had to, I had, I had to vote against, against my, you know, one of my best friends, but I thought Gandolfini oh. was better for the, better for the role. Oh yeah. I think he'll forgive you because it was Gandolfini. Oh. If it was anybody else, maybe not. I'll give you, I'll give you one, one last Gandolfini story. I know you pressed, pressed for time, but one last Gandolfini story. So I'm doing a film called Crimson Tide and we're looking for, for this, one of these characters can't find it, can't find it, can't find it, can't find it, can't find it. We, he wanted, uh, Tony Scott had wanted Gandolfini because he had done a true romance with Gandolfini, but Gandolfini wasn't available. Hmm. So couldn't find it, couldn't find it, couldn't find it. We're close to, close to filming, close to filming. At the last minute, the schedule changes. And I look at the schedule and I call his agent and I said, wait a minute, is Gandolfini going to be available? And he called me back and he said, well, he's shooting a film in France, but his last day is your first day of filming. So I said, can we make it work? And of course, Gandolfini wanted to work with Tony Scott and wanted to be with his film with Denzel. And so it works out. So Gandolfini flies in, literally sleeps in his trailer on the set. First day of set, first day, first day, very first day of, of filming. And we're on this thing called a gimbal. And a gimbal is basically a set that's on these gigantic hydraulics because we're in a submarine. Mm -hmm. And so they need to move the, you know, the submarine for the angles. And the cameras are off. They have to push the, the, you know, the entire set away so they can move this gigantic set so they can go on an angle. And so all it is is the actors and then the camera crew is on the other side of the, of the gimbal. And so the very first scene is a confrontation scene between Denzel's character and Gandolfini's character. And so we rehearse it where Gandolfini puts his hand on Denzel and Denzel slaps it away and everybody draws their guns and cut. That's the first, right? First take and action. Gandolfini grabs Denzel. Denzel hits him. Gandolfini doesn't let go. Denzel hits him again. Gandolfini doesn't <laughs> let go. Oh, no. They, they start to tussle. They start to tussle. Gandolfini punches Denzel. Oh, my God. And since we're on a, this, this angle, this gimbal, they start going out of frame, out of camera. And us as actors, I was actually on the set at the time. I, I drove the submarine. We're going, what the hell, what the hell's, and everybody starts going, hey, 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 they start, they start. <laughs> That's not in the script. No, they start tussling, you know, they're trying to get the gimbal back up to, to regular so we can, you know, Denzel is furious. And of course, you know, since I worked on the film casting it, I was, I was working with, with Vicky at the time. I was like, oh my God, we don't have a backup. Please don't fire him. Please don't fire him. And Denzel was hot. And this is again, this is the first day and Brock Hammer's there and Tony Scott's there. And so about an hour later, Gandolfini comes back and apologizes. He said, look, you know, I'm a method actor. I just, I haven't had time to really get into the character. And I just, I just went, I apologize. And so of course everything was cleared up, but it was like, oh my yeah. God, the first day of filming. Yeah. Holy and Denzel shit. was big at that time. He was big. huge. Yeah. Yeah. And it was yeah. a big hit, big hit too. <laughs> well, uh, so I'd like to ask you about your, your acting classes and Matthew Berry teaches because I've, I've looked at your website. And I am just so impressed with the talent that comes out of your class and how loyal, talking about loyalty, how loyal they are to you to give you those types of accolades on your website. When did you start teaching acting? Uh, it's about nine years ago. Somebody, in a, a friend of mine in San Francisco said, you know, hey, you know, what do you think about coming up here and, and teaching a class? And this was, probably, you know, at the height of my career. And I was like, yeah, okay, I've never done it before, but, you know, sure, why not? So I went up there and loved it and realized that I was good at it. And again, I, growing up in, in New York, 
I had worked with uh, Lee Strasberg at the, at the actor studio and I didn't get along with Lee very well because I didn't really like his methods at the time. And I did study as well at HB studios with a variety of teachers, including the great Uta Hagen. So I had, you know, I had kind of a, you know, an, a, a vast education on theories, techniques, and basically, I decided I'm not going to enforce my technique on them. I want actors to be organic. And I want to try and I can, I can definitely get the, the best out of every actor. And so I quickly realized, hey, this, this is a lot of fun. And it kind of grew and grew and grew. And everybody, and everybody kept asking me, hey, will you, know, will you, will, you know, can I work with you? Can I work with you? And it was just like, oh, my God, okay, I just, I don't have the time. And then, and then as the years went by, I found myself enjoying it more and more and more and helping actors live their dreams. And as the business changed, I found that I was enjoying educating and teaching actors. I love actors. And it really... Being an actor and making the mistakes that I made, I can help actors to not make those mistakes, to be professional and to teach them all about being a professional, putting your ego aside and just doing the work. And the advantage I had over a lot of other teachers was I was a, I was a successful actor and I was a successful casting director, so I know what I'm doing. And so I took that knowledge and impart that onto my students who obviously have an advantage over your traditional act, acting studios where I know how to work the camera. I know, how, I know what a great audition is like. I know how to work. You know, there's a big difference between stage acting, acting and auditioning, but a lot of people don't know the difference. Mm. And so I teach them the difference, especially when it comes to camera work and especially being on the other side. I wish that I had known half the things I knew as an actor that I do in casting. I probably would have booked a lot more jobs. Like not using props, for example, is, you know, all the things that can cost you a job. There's so many ways, so many things that will cost you a job that I try and eliminate them all so that the director focuses on you and your talents. And so that's another, another way. My job is to get the best out of you, mm. you know, like, like, a, like a, whether it's, you know, a baseball coach or a football coach, their job is to get the, the most out of, you know, your athletic ability. Well, my job is to get the most out of your emotional ability. And so I, you know, I, I'll push you, I'll push you, I'll push you until you are just so comfortable that you can do anything. Mm. And that is incredibly rewarding for me. Not only that, but it, it's so rewarding for me to help people achieve their dreams. You know, we all have dreams. We all have goals in life. And, and, and if I can be a part of that, it's so rewarding. It's a great feeling. Like, you know, when I'm working on a film and you cast a perfect cast, it's rewarding. It's a great feeling. It's, you know, when my students book and they tell me they, you know, they've booked, it's a great feeling when they're, you know, booking TV series, when they're going on to have great careers, it's a great feeling. And so I continue to do it. And I opened this, you know, this wonderful studio I have here in, in Sherman Oaks. And, you know, I have, you know, nice, nice, comfortable leather chairs and good seating and, you know, good food and snacks and, and a nice environment for, for the actor to kind of nurture because, you know, actors are, can be a very, very fragile group. And my job is to, is to give them that confidence, mm -hmm. you know, to go out there. Auditioning sucks. I, I, you know, doing, doing casting for 28 years, it's horrible. I, it's nerve wracking, you know, being in front of somebody and saying, you know, please, I know you're judging me, but, you know, please, can you just give me a shot? And it's like, no, just go, it, it, just to, to try and, you know, impart on the actor that, no, just go in and, and not give a crap. You know, we want you. You know, we want to see you. We want your personality. Come in and just be you. That's what gets you the job. That and talent, of course.
Yeah. But it's just, it's nice to see when it's not phony, when it's not, when it's not nerves. Of course, it's going to be, you're going to be nervous. It's nerve wracking. So I try and, and teach everybody how not to be nervous, just to go in, do your thing. And, and the, the rest is complete. It's out of your hands. Yeah. You never, you don't know, you know, what goes on behind, behind the, the, the doors. I remember when I was an actor, I went, I went, there was a TV series we all wanted to do called the Hill Street Blues. Mm, I remember it well. And I went, went in all the time and the casting directors loved me. And I went in and there's this one role, worked on it all weekend, went in and just crushed it. I was like, this job is mine. Nobody's better for this role is mine. And I'm waiting for the phone. I'm like, you know, is my phone working? You know, and I'm checking this, to ch- <laughs> I'm checking to see, you know, is, why is my agent called? I call my agent. Have you heard anything? I didn't get the job. Why? About six weeks later, the, the, the show comes on, on, on the air. I go, okay, who, who got the job? Who, who, got, who was better than me? And I watched, watched it and, and okay, here, here it comes. I know, I know the script. Here comes the scene. Oh, it's Forrest Whitaker. You know, it's, it, okay. If I have my choice between hiring Forrest Whitaker or Matt Barry, I'm hiring Forrest Whitaker, you know? Right. <laughs> so, it's, so as an actor, I try, I try and impart that on you. It's like, you don't know what goes on behind closed doors. You know, an, another film, I, I, I went back three times for this TV movie. I was fantastic. Director loved me. Producer loved me. Phenomenal, phenomenal role. The role was mine. I didn't get it. And so film comes out, you know, comes on, if, you know, a year later or so. Who got my role? Who got my, oh, oh Jim Carrey got my role? <laughs> okay. <laughs> and, and Jim was great. And I went, oh, that, the funny guy, the, the, this guy got my, oh, well, and I got to hand it to him. He was, he was better than me. Yeah. He was, he was more right for the role than me. You know, I get it. Well, I, I saw an interview with um, an Austrian actor by the name of Christoph Walls. Yeah. From Inglorious Bastards. And it was just last night I was watching this. It was, he was on uh, Jerry Seinfeld's Comedians in Cars getting coffee. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw that. I watched that. And, uh, but he said, if you put a great actor in the wrong role, you're going to get a bad performance. And I I think that reminds me of what you're talking about, which is these producers, these directors, these catching directors are probably looking for not just great actors, but the right actor for this particular role. And you can never know that as an actor. Yep. So you can't take it too personally, it sounds like. You can't. You can't. I mean, it's, it's you know, as, as a producer, I'm offered up actors all the time. And, I, and it's so tempting because I know I'll get the, the project made, but it's wrong. Right. It's not right. I'm putting in an actor in a role that, you know, I feel he, he can't handle or isn't right for or the audience isn't going to believe. Now, I'm all for, yes, can, can Will Ferrell do drama? Yes, but it's got to be the right drama. Mm-hmm. You know, can, can a comedian, can Jim Carrey do, you know, do drama as well? Yes, if it's, it's the right role. Can a dramatic actor do comedy? Uh, not so much. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've had that experience, you know, where they go, oh, he can be funny. He is funny. But, you know, sometimes it works. Like, you know, the other woman, Nikolai Koster-Waldau. Yep. Nobody ever thought he was funny. But we knew he was funny and we showed the studio he was funny. And guess what? He was funny. He was. So it's, it's got to be right. And sometimes you got to convince, convince people that, that they're, they're right for the, for the job. Well, Matthew, it's been great talking to you. Can you let our listeners know where they can find you on social media and the web? The website is www. Do we still have to say that now? www. <laughs> no, I don't think so. <laughs> um, uh, MatthewBarryTeaches.com. That's with two T's, M-A-T-T-H-E-W, MatthewBarryTeaches.com. A lot of information. Anybody can reach out to me if you, uh, you can answer it. I answer every question from, from anybody. 
agents, managers, you know, anything that, that, you know, actors have, uh, it might take me a day or two to get, get back to you, but I will answer everything. I'm on all of the social media. I'm on Facebook. Twitter is big mouth Barry. Cause I'm a big hockey fan and I have a big mouth when it comes to hockey. So nice. Uh, it, big mouth Barry is my Twitter handle, but, uh, the rest is uh, Matthew Barry on, uh, or uh, Matthew Barry teaches on Instagram. I'm not on TikTok yet, but I, I guess I have to get a, get on there. Oh, another one. Yeah, we had to figure that one out. <laughs> it's all it's all the kids. We're getting we're getting old, man. We're getting old. We can't yeah. keep up. Can't keep up. Yeah. Well, it's been a real pleasure talking to you, Matthew. Thanks for sharing your story about your life. Thank you. Well, thank you for for doing this. It's wonderful that you know, and thank you everybody for listening for taking the time to you know sit through everything that that you have to offer. Yeah, it's been a, it's been a lot of fun. Yeah, I had a great time. Thank you. Hey, thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If so, I have a favor to ask. Can you go to wherever you listen to podcasts and leave me a review? Your feedback is what keeps this podcast going. You can also check us out on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook with the handle at DreamPathPod. And as always, go find your dream path. <laughs>